Aren't you guys glad today that we are not gathered here to be part of something dead? You know, I, I look at the world and all of its religions and people kind of go through their religious motions to be part of a church or part of an organization or part of a, a religious, you know, denomination or whatever it might be. And I, I just, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I, want, I, I want to interact with a living God who's with me, who's for me, who knows me inside and out, and whose intention for me is not to walk this world alone. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He's risen from the dead, and he's alive forevermore. He is the hope of the world. He is the hope of every, not, all, not only all mankind, but every individual person within that group. And... It's so special that when the people of God gather, they don't sing songs to the air. They don't study archaic rule books. They aren't part of dead religion. But they are the living stones, the temple of God and the Spirit. There's something that's special that happens when we allow God to move and touch our hearts, speak. And as we sung that song, the Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, I, I couldn't help as I'm singing it to think that Jesus said, you know, the, it's the Holy Spirit who testifies of me. It's, it's, it's to draw our attention to the person of Jesus. God come down, crucified on a cross for our sins, conquering death forever, our Savior, our King. So I'd like to sing that chorus again, but I'd like to change the words just a little bit um, we're just going to pray. We're going to sing, uh, Come, Lord Jesus, you are welcome here. And the Holy Spirit just, I believe, wants to draw our attention now to Jesus, just to see him, to picture him, and to invite the living word of God into our midst. So we're just going to sing, Come, Lord Jesus, you are welcome here. Let's sing it out together. Come, Lord Jesus, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence,
Father, we love you. We thank you for the nearness of your presence to us. We thank you for the active work you're doing in our lives. Sometimes uh, it's, it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes we don't perceive it in a moment. But it's in moments like these that we just remember, God, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. It's in moments like these that we remember everything you do is good. It's in moments like these that we sing out these love songs to you and are reminded of how deep and great your love is for us. Lord, I pray you touch every heart in this room, that you lift every spirit, set our feet firmly upon the rock cannot be shaken or moved we invite you to continue your work through the study of your word we love you Lord and we thank you for being here with us tonight, today Lord and we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus name and all God's people agreed Good morning, church. Welcome. It's great to see you all today. It's a beautiful day. Uh, we've got a, uh, we're going to be back in Hebrews today, so if you want to grab your Bibles and, and get towards Hebrews chapter 4, I've got a few announcements for you, but you can pick up and open there at Hebrews chapter 4. Um, first of all, I just want to acknowledge and, and give a huge thanks. We were talking in our pastor's meeting the other day about uh, how many things are, are happening within our church. Um, I'm getting calls, emails from people. They're getting excited about what God's calling them to do, about what the Lord's doing in our community. And, you know, I think that when we come to church every week, week in, week out, we take for granted a lot. Um, the clean sanctuary, the comfortable seats, a worship team that's practiced and trained and, you know, all the resources we need that God's so graciously entrusted to us. Uh, for those who are watching online today, sometimes it's easy to take for granted that there's people who wake up really early, come here before everyone gets here, gets all the cameras going, is, is back there, is up there doing all the, all the computers and the slides and the media and the audio and the clean bathrooms and the clean foyer. I mean, it's all because there are people who just want to serve God and want to serve his people. And I am so blessed that we're part of a church where people just don't let ministry happen to them. They become an active part of the ministry. And I want to give just a big thank you, a round of applause thank you to everyone who serves us every week, week in, week out here at the church. So can we do that for everybody? We're just really grateful for you. And I want to, I want to say this as well. This is kind of a plug because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the only way the church grows is when every member does its part, which means if you're looking and you're feeling prompted, you know, I think there is more service for me within, both within and without the, outside and within the church. God's calling me to, to something, to serve the body in some way. I want to encourage you to look at the opportunities we have available. You can look at it on our website. We have a lot of teams that serve in a lot of areas. 
uh, to make our gatherings possible. But other than that, we also have a lot of ministries that we still need help with. Um, they're discipling our children down there every week. Perhaps you have a heart for kids and you can help Dan, Pastor Dan down there, help disciple the kids and teach them God's word. Perhaps you want to be a, that hug or that smile to someone who's coming in off a hard week to church and you want to sh- serve with the ushers, the greeters. Uh, maybe you want to get something going with evangelism in our community. I tell you, there's a great need for the gospel to go out. Uh, who knows what God might be calling you to, but there is a place for you here. And I, I say that biblically. I know it because God has called every one of us to be a part of the body, amen? And so, uh, as the Lord leads you, I encourage you to get involved uh, here at the church. Uh, Secondly, we have our men's and women's discipleship group starting this evening. We're kicking off our studies in these two wonderful books, biblically-based books. Uh, I wouldn't want any other book than than a book that's coming straight uh, from the scriptures, and that's what these books do in developing these godly disciplines for this new year. If you've signed up, thank you. We are exceeding our numbers much more than I anticipated. <laughs> we are, praise God, I'm so glad you guys signed up. And I know, I already know that the Chiefs have an important game tonight. <laughs> I already know that, okay? And, um, and well, Josh, are you, are you going to change, you know, the discipleship groups around the Chiefs game? No, I am not. I have nothing against the Chiefs, and I have nothing against football. I I enjoy it, Um, but I think that when we prioritize our pursuit of God, or let me just say the words of Jesus, um, pursue His righteousness, His kingdom first, and everything else shall be added to you. Um, I don't want to get in the pattern and habit, and I don't want to offend anyone either, but I don't want to get in the pattern and habit of changing our pursuit of Christ around the NFL. In fact, I think the NFL should stop messing around with Sundays, personally. <laughs> um, and so, uh, still wear your Chiefs clothes and everything else like that. I'm not against the Chiefs. Uh, I just, I just want to prioritize things right, that's all. So, um, yeah, I hope, I hope you guys will join us tonight uh, because... Super Bowl is on our second Sunday, so (laughs) might as well get ready. (laughs) I'm emptying out the church of all sorts of people over the next two weeks. I'm just past two weeks, uh, but that's okay. This morning we come to God's Word. It's perhaps we open with and close with perhaps two of the most powerful verses in in the entire book of Hebrews, verses that many people have memorized and hidden in their hearts. We're going to see today that at first they seem to oppose each other, but actually they're tied together in in a very profound way. And so if you would stand with me as we look at Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16. As we read God's word, I'll read the even-numbered verses, and if you would join me together with the odd-numbered verses. Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 12, the author continues, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart.
seeing that we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. When I was about 14 years old, um, my dad, who is a worship leader, he's a great songwriter, he had the opportunity to record a, an, an album of worship songs. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to show you one of them at the end of our service today. But the title track and the title of the album was Pierce My Heart. And he wrote this song, it was called Pierce My Heart, and the lyrics of the chorus simply went, uh, Pierce my heart, Lord, change my ways. Let each moment that I live reflect your grace. Pierce my heart, Lord, help me see more and more of you each day inside of me. Very straightforward, simple, beautiful song. And I remember at a young age, young with the Lord, not really fully understanding everything about my faith, thinking about that title, Pierce My Heart. I mean, what if someone who knew nothing and no context of Jesus or God saw a, an album and a, t- and a song called Pierce My Heart? They think it'd be like a death metal song about, uh, you know, uh, death and, and slain and blood. I mean, who, who asks someone to take a knife and pierce their heart? And yet there's this, almost this uh, subconscious knowledge, this inerrant, inherent value that we as Christians, when we come to know the Lord, we begin to understand something that seems a little ironic. And that is that sometimes the best thing that can happen to us from God is when he wounds us. What do you mean, Josh, wounds us? When Literally, when he takes a sword and he puts it inside of us and certain things that have to die, die. That certain things that are killing our spiritual life have to themselves be killed. And our author of Hebrews today leads us on a path to show us that that very weapon is nothing less than the Word of God. And what it does in our hearts and what it does in our lives. Paul again is writing to Hebrew believers who are on the verge of being tempted to move away from their hope in Christ back to a system of Legalism of law, of sacrifices, the old covenant under Moses. And the author is saying there is a word of God that is calling you to faith, that is calling you out of unbelief. The living word, Jesus Christ is speaking his truth to you today and he's calling you, he's warning you. If you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. 
Do not let God's word meet a heart of stone that is callous because of sin and unbelief. And in verse 12, he tells us how powerful that word is, that word that he brought to them, that word that he's been speaking to them about the wilderness wanderers and their lack of belief and their lack of trust, and they failed to enter into God's promised rest because the word of God that they heard was not mixed with faith. And this is the warning. When the word of God comes to you so clearly and calls you to such action, to harden your heart against it, to rebel against it, to ignore it, is to come against a sword. And he states in verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we talk about the characteristics of God's word, as mentioned here, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the author referring to when he uses that phrase, ha theos logos, the word of God? What's he talking about? Well, as 21st century believers, we hear the phrase, the word of God, and immediately, what, what is the image that comes to your mind when I just say the word of God? It's the Bible. You and I think of that because we, we, we call this the word of God, and it is the very word of God. These books, Old Testament and New, the law, the prophets, the apostles' doctrine, Jesus being at the center of it all has been not only God-breathed, which means directly inspired by, prophetically by God through man, to man, but preserved throughout the ages through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the church, to bring his, his perfect communication and will and heart to us today. We, we rightfully call this the Word of God. In Ephesians Chapter 2, Paul says it like this. He says, the church is the household of the living God. And what is the household of God built on? He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the New Testament and the Old Testament. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Jesus Christ brings us this cohesiveness between the Old and the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit is actively speaking through the preserved word that we hold in our hands here today. But here's what I want to warn us against. When the author here writes, ha logos theos, the word of God, he is thinking of John chapter 1 verse 1 at the same time, isn't he? In the beginning was the, and the word was, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the living word of God? Jesus. He died, he rose again, he's alive forevermore. You might remember back in Hebrews chapter 1 how he starts off the whole book. In various times, in times past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, and in various times, in various ways, he has spoken, but today, now, he speaks to us through Jesus, 
the living word of God. You see, this book that you hold, if Jesus wasn't alive today, you'd be, do, you'd be doing nothing more than studying, studying fairly interesting history. And I find it interesting because there are scholars who spend their whole life in biblical study. They teach college courses on the Bible. They don't believe in God. They don't have a living Jesus living in them. But they, are, they will know the Bible backward and forward more than you and I put together. And yet, the, 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 simply the words on the pages haven't necessarily changed their life, converted their heart, because the word is Jesus bringing life to the things that are written in this book. I'll, I'll sum it up like this. The written word, which is the Bible, is animated or brought to life by the living word, who is Jesus, who actively communicates today by the Holy Spirit. We might, we might think of it in terms of a succession. When we open our Bible and we read a part of the scripture, we can't merely approach it academically. You understand? There are academic things to learn about the Bible, historical things, archaeological things, apologetic, wonderful, incredible things we need to learn academically. But we are actually approaching through the written word, the living word. And when we open this, Jesus takes what we read and he, by the Holy Spirit, starts to speak to us. You. The very things that are in this book come to life through the living Jesus who is actively instructing you on what's going on with you right now, right here. You guys, there's, there's no other word that has that kind of power or that kind of life. But it's important that we speak here in, in terms, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he told us that the things we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Here Paul is giving the word of God to the Hebrew believers. He's giving them the word from the Old Testament, and he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of that word, and Jesus is still speaking to you through that word today. Don't harden your hearts when you hear him. It's interesting to think of the word of God in this, in this context because here Paul is telling this, this group of believers, the word of God is always there. It never changes, shows no favoritism. It's always there. But the very word that was designed to lead you into the promised rest of God if you ignore it, is the same word that will condemn you in judgment. And so with that in mind, we think of the word of God being powerful. We're talking about the Bible, but more, more, more importantly, we're talking about what Jesus speaks to us through the Bible. You guys following me? 
Not merely an academic study, but an interaction with a living word of God who is speaking us to us through the written word. That's an important thing to understand. And here the author displays the word of God as an instrument of war. Sword of the Spirit. So we're going to look at three points this morning as we dive deeply into the passage. If you're taking notes, jot down our first observation. What does Paul say here about the nature of God's word? The nature of God's word, or you might say the characteristic of God's word. Verse 12 will state the obvious. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So point number one under the nature of God's word is simply this. The word of God is living. It is alive. In John chapter 6, Jesus said it is a spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And then Jesus said the words that I speak are spirit and they are life. The word of God has a unique characteristic above any other written work ever penned by any other human being. In that the word of God can renew and convict and bring spiritual life into a human being. I I, I mean, there have been countless Sundays where someone tells me, who told you what I was going through? You don't know, that message was for me today. Well, I certainly don't know what you're going through. I don't sit there uh, all week on Facebook and Instagram looking at what I can say to who to make sure I get the right message. No, what I do is, is I trust that the living word is going to speak through the written word and say something to the people of God who need to hear from him. And that's exactly what happens. Why? Because there's a, a vibrance, a life to God's word. Growing up, my dad, he used to uh, have this practice. He would take his Bible, he'd read it from front to back and put his notes on every page and then he'd give it away to somebody and he'd start over. I think he's on his 10th or 11th Bible. And every, the Bible he has, he has now, it's engraved, you know, like you can get it engraved and it doesn't have his name. It says, danger, explosive material. <laughs> I love that. Every time I look at that, The Word of God is, is not like a book that simply stimulates your mind or provokes your emotions. It is, a, it is a Word that once it enters into you, begins to become active. The word life or living, zeo in the Greek, it means fresh, strong, powerful, efficacious, if your, if your Bible is boring to you, there's a good chance that maybe you're not actively engaging the living word as much as you are simply reading words on paper. Just checking off my list, you know. Going through the one-year Bible, okay, I read it, check, I'm reading the Bible. Do you know the Bible says, never, never says, the Bible never says read your Bible. 
Never. I grew up with this phrase, right? Read your Bible and pray every single day. It's a great, a great little pithy phrase to live by. I love it. But the Bible never says read your Bible. It uses language like meditate day and night. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. See, the word of God is to be engaged with, interacted with. God, what are you saying? What am I... How, how, do you, how do you want this to transform me? And that word brings life, which is no wonder Paul gives Titus, or excuse me, Timothy, one of the most po- important pastoral, recommend, uh, pastoral words of advice in first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, where he simply says, Timothy, preach the word. Don't preach philosophy. Don't preach the 10 next steps to your better life now. Don't preach the, the things that people want to hear because their ears need to be tickled so they can go away feeling better about themselves. Don't preach the things that you think will be effective to grow the church. Preach the word. Why? Because your wisdom can't change the hearts of people. Your creative little stories and statements can't free someone from the power of sin. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching. And here, Paul says that the word of God is living. There was a phrase in ancient times. There were certain laws referred to as dead laws, okay? And a dead law was basically a law that was on the books to sort of intimidate the populace, but there was never any intentional follow-through on that law. It, was, it had become a law that technically exists, but still somewhat irrelevant. There's a legal term today called the dead, uh, the dead word or the, uh, the dead letter. It's a law that is on the books, but it's not enforced and it's outdated. Here's, here's a few examples. Today, it is illegal in Alaska to get drunk in a bar. I don't, know how, I don't know how well they're enforcing that, you know. You are not allowed in Arkansas to mispronounce the word Arkansas. It's, it's, it's a law. In Gainesville, Georgia, it's illegal since 1961 to eat fried chicken with anything other than your fingers. <laughs> I'm not joking. The city I, I pastored in, in Georgia, uh, Kennesaw, there was a law on the books that every homeowner had to own a gun. Probably not a bad idea these days, but. <laughs> in Maryland, you can get a $100 fine for swearing or cursing while driving. I'm just trying to figure out how they enforce that, right? The cop, like, has a, he's, like, watching you in your car, and he's, if your mouth looks like you say a curse word, how does that even work? 
And in Wyoming, you aren't allowed to buy anything from someone who is drunk. So, you know, what are these? These are, these are dead laws. The opposite is a living law. A living law is one that if it's not obeyed or heeded, you face the full force of the legal system against you. And here, the author communicates to us that God's word is living. It's not dead. It's not an antiquated book of rules. It's not interesting history. It is active and living today. One cannot ignore God's word without consequences. God doesn't turn a blind eye to those who hear his word and willingly rebel against it. The word of God, we're told, governs the universe. Everything, every atom, every molecule is held in place today by the word of God, Jesus Christ. One can no more jump off a roof and escape the law of gravity than they can hear the word of God, ignore it, and expect to escape its consequences. Seven times in the book of Revelation, Jesus uses this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Do we have ears today to let the living word of God have its perfect work in our lives? Second thing about the nature of God's word is that simply it is powerful. It is living, it is powerful. The word powerful here is important. It's where we derive the English word energy or energetic or activity. That means it's always at work. Isaiah 55, 11. God says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is always actively working when it goes out. It can't be taken back and it starts its work as me- immediately as it enters in to the heart of a person. But God's word is not powerful in the, in the English emotional sense, right? We say, oh, that, did you see that movie? It was so powerful. Did you read that article? It was so powerful. And what we mean is that we were emotionally moved by it. Now, God's word is powerful in that way. I've been emotionally moved many times by God's word. But that's not what the word implies here. The word powerful has a sense of authority. When he says his word is powerful, full of power, actively at work in an authoritative way, what he's saying is what happens when there's nothing and nothing hears the word of God say, let there be fill in the blank, and there is. That's powerful. What happens when a storm hears the word of God say, peace, be still? It stops. What happens when a broken body from birth Here's the living word. Say your sins are forgiven you. Get up and walk. His sins are forgiven him, and he gets up and walks. That's power. 
God's word has the power to do things in our life and in our hearts that are unthinkable. So it is living, it is active, it is powerful. It is, thirdly, sharp. It is sharp. Told here, sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's, of course, a blade that cuts both ways. It has no dull end, whether it's going in, coming out, going up, going down. It can be effective any way you slice it. But here's the thing I want to point your attention to. When the author introduces a picture of a Roman sword, and that's what the word here is, be it the long sword or the short sword, the dagger, the long sword being for battle against multiple enemies, the short sword for hand-to-hand combat. When the author says that the, the, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, the, the reader understands, unlike, things, unlike, unlike what we would understand. The reader understands. I would have seen it every day. What Paul is talking about is an instrument of death. There is nothing good that comes to mind when you think of the sword. When you think of what the sword does, it's an instrument of death. And so they have this image in their mind of things being cut, stabbed, execution, war, judgment. In fact, the verse in verse 13, which we'll get to where it says that everything is laid bare before him. It's actually the term of execution. That the, that the neck of the guilty would be laid bare and open and exposed before the executioner's sword. Whoa, Josh, this is getting, this is getting a little too crazy for me. Let's build a little more on this context. In the book of Revelation, four separate times, Jesus is portrayed as having a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. With it, he deals with false doctrine. With it, he destroys, he judges the nations. With it, he destroys the armies of the beast of the Antichrist. There's something about his word that has a very destructive force to it. Now, I need you to stick with me here. Why do you think the Apostle Paul, when speaking about our spiritual warfare against satanic forces, calls the word of God the sword of the Spirit? Because it's dangerous. It's dangerous against forces of darkness. It's dangerous against forces of evil. And so with that picture in mind of the double-edged sword and God's word being even sharper, even deadlier, even more precise than the double-edged sword, we have to ask, well, what does that sword use for? That brings us to our second point in verses 12 and 13 is the operation of God's word. The operation of God's word. Verse 12 tells us, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So the first operation of God's word we see, number one, is that the word of God pierces. As a sharp two-edged sword, it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow. Now there's a picture here 
When we see this language, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, what is he talking about? You need to understand the Hebrew philosophy of the human being, okay? Soul, this is the word psyche, our natural thoughts, our mind. It's attached to the physical, okay? Our soul, psyche, and our spirit, pneuma, or wind, breath of God. It's that place of connection with God. It's that place of worship. It's that place where there's a a sense of eternality. And the picture he points here is a sword that comes in and divides between the soul and the spirit. If the soul is your represents your physical being and your spirit represents your spiritual being, what happens when the soul and the spirit are separated? What is that called? Does any, anyone want to guess? That's called death. When your soul gets separated from your spirit, you have left the tent. <laughs> you have exited. You are gone. And then he gets even more graphic. And the bones and the marrow... I don't want to gross anyone out, and again, I don't want to offend anyone, but I, I got a good picture of this during deer season when I got my first buck in Missouri. Beautiful, nine-point buck. And I, I, I shot, shot it, which, by the way, has provided an amazing food for my family over the past couple months. And it ran into the woods, and I had to go find it, and found it, turned that thing upside down, got out my hunter's hunting knife. And let me just tell you, there's a lot more to a deer than appears to be on the outside. <laughs> when you start dividing the skin and the muscle and the bones and the marrow, it's so, those knives, man, they're so sharp. It's one slice. And all of a sudden, everything that's inside is seen very clearly, isn't it? Why such a gruesome picture of death and exposure and pain in relationship to the Word of God, Jesus speaking actively to us? I believe it's because there are certain things in us that have to die and that need to be exposed in order for us to effectively know God the way that he wants us to. Sometimes only traumatic, excessive force can separate the things that are killing us from the things that give us life. And this is a frightening picture because what what the author is communicating is the word of God. You you can either let it do its work in your life, as painful as that might be, or you can resist it and come against a sword that will kill you, (laughs) that will lead you to judgment, that will stand against you in the day that you are held accountable for what you knew and what you heard. Notice it says that uh, the word of God is a discerner, a discerner of the intents of the heart. 
The word is kritikos in the Greek. It actually is a, a reference to a skilled judge who pronounces a sentence. In other words, the word of God has the ability to weigh the evidence that is seen on the inside of us. It's a little sobering that you can't fool God. You can come to church, you can lift your hands, you can say all the right Christian phrases, you can go to Bible study, you can wear a t-shirt. God is not interested in any of those things more than he's interested in where it's all coming from. What's in here? What's going on the inside? God's word holds no biases. It shows no favoritism. If you ever come out of a church service or a personal time with the Lord and you feel exposed and convicted, that's because the word of God has cut you open. And the Holy Spirit of God has shown you something that is inconsistent in your life, that is keeping you from life in Christ, that is hindering your relationship with God, that is hurting other people. And this phrase here, notice that it says, nothing is hidden from his sight. And of course, I love how, it, how he uses the, the personal pronoun his, because now he's talking about Jesus, the living word. Nothing is hidden from his sight, but all is exposed and laid bare. I don't necessarily recommend the Amplified Bible for your regular study, but I do love how they paraphrase verse 13. I think it captures the thought well. There they paraphrase it, nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what. I was playing around with Google Earth a couple days ago. It's kind of cool. And, and as I was doing it, I was reminded that no matter what I do today, someone's always watching me. Right? Facebook is tracking all my internet activity, and uh, Google is tracking my, and Apple, they're tracking my travel and my eating habits, and the government is tracking who knows what, you know, I got going on. Everyone's watching, everyone's seeing something. Now, while Facebook and Google and the government may be interested in your private information for all the wrong reasons, not so with God. He is our creator. He is the rightful judge of the universe. And we are told that every thought, every intent, every action, and every word is going to require an account before God. I want to take a moment here just to unpack this a little more. In 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks in very clear terms. He says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for everything done in the body, good and bad. We're told that that which is good will remain, that which is bad, wood, hay, and supple will burn away, yet we will be saved as through the fire. I don't want to lighten the weight when Paul says here, 
Everything is laid open and naked. It's that same word that was used for Adam and Eve, right? That same concept. They were naked before the Lord. God saw them for what they really were. To him whom we must give account. Well, Josh, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven, got my get out of hell free card. I'm, I, I, I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm just going straight to heaven and it's all going to be good. You are right. But here's what you might not be taking into consideration. You will also stand before Jesus and you will tell him why. You thought every thought you ever thought. You said every word you ever said. You did or didn't do everything you did or didn't do. You will still be saved because your salvation is not dependent on whether or not you were good enough to earn it. Is anyone grateful for that? Amen? Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate. He will stand in our place. He will look at all our failures, our sins, and say, I've got it covered. Enter into the joy of the Lord. But I think a lot of times we forget the reality that we still stand before him according to the word of God and we give an account for the things that we did in this life to see whether or not they were truly, eternally valuable. And this creates a very interesting tension in me. I am not scared of hell. No fear of it whatsoever. But do you ever remember when a kid, as a kid when you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing and mom and dad got wind of it and that gut-sinking feeling moment where you had to fess up. You were going to be forgiven, maybe disciplined, but what did I just do? I could be wrong, and if I find myself wrong, I will gladly correct myself humbly before you all, but I don't even know how to describe it. There's a little bit of a sinking feeling in my stomach when I think that Jesus is going to ask me about every person I passed. About every opportunity I had that I just didn't believe him for. About every injustice that I decided not to say anything about and every self-righteous thing I said something about when I should have shut up. I don't feel guilt. I know that he's erased that, but I, I think it's important for us to know that God sees it all. And his word will hold us accountable to what we have received. For to whom much is given, much is required. And that is not um, a legalistic way of me saying, earn your salvation, work harder. No. But it is that we should be mindful of who we work for and why we work. This fall, I was doing some yard work and I was weed whacking the, this hill that we have at our house and there was so many weeds and my weed whacker clunked into something and I went down and I looked and it was, 
just a bunch of rusty barbed wire, you know, hidden underneath the, uh, the weeds. And my thought is, my thought was, I'm, I'm really glad I had something that exposed that before it hurt me. You see, that's what God's word does. It exposes ticking time bombs within ourselves that we can't see. That's what the sword does. It cuts us open. One other thing I want to say is, is be careful how you use that sword. It's very easy for us to take the sword and start swinging it at other people. There's a lot of self-righteousness that happens in our hearts when we can take the Bible, beat it over people's heads and express all their shortcomings and all their failures and you should do this and you should do that. It's the word of God. I'll tell you what, the only time you and I are ever qualified to use the scalpel of surgery of the word of God on other people is after we've taken the sword of the spirit to our own hearts. If you want to use the word of God, let it cut into you first. Look in the law of God's perfect liberty, the mirror of God's perfect law of liberty, and let it show you what's really there. John Brown, in his commentary on Hebrews, he wrote this powerful statement, God requires of us conformity in mind and heart to him. And if we do not yield it, he is perfectly aware of this and can and and will deal with us not according to what we appear to be, but according to what we really are and uh, and what he knows us to be. He knows us. But we have to close on this beautiful bridge as he speaks of God's living word, Jesus Christ, that everything is open and exposed before him, that he knows us. Jesus sees everything. Jesus knows everything. He knows your worst moment. He knows your best moment. He knows your worst sin. He knows your greatest victory. He knows everything. Which leads us to our third point, and that is the opportunity that God's word brings to us. Warren Wiersbe said, the word of God exposes our hearts and then if we trust God, the word enables our hearts to obey God and claim his promises. The author doesn't stop with the word of God cutting into us, killing off that which needs to die and exposing what's really inside of us. He doesn't just end there. What he says is that same living word of God, Jesus, in verse 14, seeing then, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. The same living word that exposes what's in us and knows what's in us also is that same living word that came and walked in our shoes, lived the life, experienced temptation, struggled with it struggled in the flesh, yet he, he made it out of this life without sin, fully pleasing God in every way, having gained the greater victory for us. So when the word of God exposes us, we can go to the word of God and know that he is standing in the place between us and the Father. 
He sympathizes with us. He knows our struggle. He knows our pain. And verse 16 concludes with this beautiful invitation. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word exposes us. It speaks to us. It convicts us. It challenges us. Why? So that it drives us to the throne next to the execution block, which is full of grace and mercy and forgiveness and help. The only way that you're going to request help is when you know you need help. The only way you're going to request grace is when you know you're in need of grace. The only time you're going to be desperate for mercy is when you recognize that you need mercy. And the only way you recognize you need mercy and grace and help is by letting the word of God do its work in your heart. But it doesn't speak to us to condemn us. It speaks to us to lead us into the rest of God, to the throne of grace. And notice the, the, the qualities of it. Come boldly. You don't have to be intimidated. You are unhindered. Why? Because you're worthy? Because you did something to impress God and, 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 and warrant an invitation into his presence? No, because, and I love this word boldly, it actually, in, the, in its tense, it means to go after another. The, the, the literal language is, is, is implying Jesus went before you as your faithful high priest Jesus did what you couldn't do. Jesus intercedes on your behalf. Jesus went before you into the presence of God. And so you, through him, can boldly approach his throne of grace. Why? Because you go after him. I love that picture. You don't go on your own. You go after him to receive help. And I love this little phrase, in time of need. I don't know about you, but for me, that's most of the time. In time of need. When do I need God? Now. People are so limited in time and scope and ability. God, God's grace, his wells of grace and mercy are, are constantly filled. He's always available. Do you need strength now? It's yours in Christ. Do you need help now? It's yours in Christ. Do you need to overcome sin now? It's yours in Christ. But the word that they heard didn't profit them not being mixed with faith. The question is, is do you believe that it's yours in Christ? The throne is a confusing and troublesome picture for some rabbis. There is an actually rabbinic thought that God has two thrones, one where he judges people and one where he forgives people because how could God be a perfect judge and be merciful at the same time? He must have two thrones. I'll tell you how. Jesus. There is one throne. And that throne and that word will either judge you or justify you. Depending on what you and I do with it once it's received. Here's what I found about the word of God, and I'll close here. 
The word of God can hurt or heal, judge or justify, destroy or deliver. It all depends on what you do with it today. What is God speaking to you right now? What has his word revealed in your heart that you've been running from, hiding from? What kind of response does it elicit, does it require? And I would close with the words of the Apostle Paul. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I want to have a moment of quiet prayer and personal reflection. And this is a little different. I know it's maybe a little odd, but I, I want to show you guys this song my dad wrote. Now, keep in mind, it was recorded in 1995. Um, but what I'd like to do is invite you to have a moment with the living word. You've heard the written word, maybe adequately or inadequately taught, but the word has nonetheless been given. I want you to ask the living word to speak to you, to minister to you, to change you, to give you the strength and the grace and the help that you need, even right now. So if we just can enter into an attitude of prayer, and I'm just going to have them play this song that my dad wrote. I just Very simple, I think it's appropriate song for the, the message today.
Amen. Love you guys. Uh, God bless you, and you have a wonderful Sunday, and go with the Lord.